The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. Well, as we expected, you're a curious bunch and had a lot of really great questions during the live. Wade and Alex sat down with some that they didn't have time to talk about last week and dived in. They may not be click and clack, but we're definitely playing Stump the Chump here. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Retire with Style. I'm Wade, and I'm joined by my trusty sidekick and co-host, Alex. And we're happy to welcome you to a new episode of Retire with Style, where we're going to continue with Q&A. But before we get to that, I do understand that Alex has been serving as Mr. Mom in his household. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Alex? Yes, yes, Mr. Mom. Uh, what was that? That was the, that sort of movie. Uh, uh, why am I blanking out? <laughs> No, 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 Mr. Mom. I, why am I blanking out? It was uh, yeah, the, he played Batman, the original. Yeah, Michael Keaton. There you go. There you go. In Detroit, I think something like that. Yeah, uh, as you know, Wade, my wife Christy and my mother-in-law Marlene went to Tanzania. They they're sponsoring a school, and so they're they're helping out. They're actually my mother-in-law spending three months there, and oh. Chris will be there for for I know right for three weeks, just uh, getting a school off the ground for the school year. I, I think they, they started today, actually. So that's kind of interesting. And so, yeah, it's left me alone with my uh, eight, 17-year-old boys, got- the twins, and a uh, 15-year-old boy. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been Mr. Mom and then some. Yeah, it's been crazy. Like the Brady Bunch, three boys and the Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, there's a story. <laughs> no. uh, but uh, I was going to say, uh, yeah, yesterday, I, I spent yesterday making, it brought me back the, the my college days, I, memories of the college days where like on weekends, you'd cook for the week, you know? And so, yeah, I made uh, pork chops, steaks, chili, and uh, rice and sausage for the whole wow. week. So that should hold them down. Yeah, yeah. Packaged it and everything. Spent the whole week cooking. Quite a so that gourmet. was, I mean, weekend. No, I don't know how gourmet it was, but uh, it brought me back to that. And it also brought me back to my uh, days as a line cook at Chili's, where you would make like 100 pounds of mashed potatoes. <laughs> Chili's? <laughs> and let it rip. Yeah, yeah. In the morning prep, you'd get in. I would get in like a... Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I would get in. No, no, I was, was like... Menu. I was a waiter. I was a waiter, but I was also a line cook because I wanted to learn how to cook. And uh, this is like uh, high school and a little bit of college. And I would get in at sun, I, in the weekends. I would get in if I didn't have a night shift. I'd get in like at six in the morning, six seven in the morning. I don't remember exactly. And we start prepping. So by the time lunch is in, everything's already kind of done. And yeah, it was like hundred pounds of mashed potatoes, ten gallons of ranch dressing, it, like things like that. It was crazy. You you you'd smoke the the ribs. You'd blanch the wings. You it, you know how to cook in bulk. Let me say it like uh-huh. that. <laughs> so it was kind of like that sort of uh, rehashing Good. on a Sunday. So there it is, man. 
Amazing. The kids got to school yeah. on time. No, house. no blow up. House, house didn't burn down yet. So knock on wood, <laughs> you know, so we'll see. But yeah, it's crazy. But uh, I mean, Chrissy told me yesterday she, she made like 300 rolls of bread and about 500 loaves of bread wow. as well for the kids. Yeah. She said that's going to last through Wednesday. And so Wednesday night, they have to go at it again. So it's amazing what teachers do. I mean, they, and they work, you know, almost like 12-hour shifts, if not more so. It's pretty intense. That was kind of good. Yeah. Yeah, give me a chance. Yeah. To what did you do? Time. What did you do on Sunday? Did you relax? <laughs> did you sit on your hammock and read uh, revisions of your book? Yeah, or? it's more, more the latter. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get that wrapped up. I got you. It's moving along, though. Yeah. So, what do we have today? Where? We, yeah. Well, well, so we, well, I know what we have. So we get to on. procrastinate on the long-term care arc because we got an overwhelming number of questions with our call for questions for the the live session. I think we're. I don't know how many episodes it's going to be, but we're going to need a few episodes to work through the backlog of questions we received, and we want to make sure we address everything. So this session in particular. Even on the live, the, our, the last episode, YouTube Live, there were more questions asked in the live session than we were able to get to. So we want to work our way through the rest of those. And then we'll, we'll proceed in further episodes to get through the, the questions that came in before that session as well. No, I think it's awesome. And we, we're going to turn this into a talk show. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, first time caller, long time Colin listener. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right, let's let's go with the first one and start knocking it out. But yeah, yeah, Wade and I are extremely excited. Number one, it relieves us from always having to think of, okay, what arc are we going to do next? Which we still have plenty to go to, but at least it's less work. And, uh, you know, questions are more more poignant there they're more uh the valence is high because you know these are questions you folks want answered yeah. so what's, we'll do our what's best on your mind and also it shows like where we might not be fully explaining something or there may be some confusion or it, it's it's helpful to, to yeah. know what you're thinking okay and so uh here you go number one can you discuss the pros cons of purchasing a deferred annuity in the pre-retirement planning phase Parents five years or so, particularly for those who are interested in guaranteed income for essential expenses. Wade, you're up. Yeah, take it away. <laughs> so you, the and there are a lot of questions about annuities mixed throughout the broader sets of questions. This one just uses the term deferred annuity rather than specifically a deferred income annuity. So. Deferred annuities can provide lifetime income with living benefits. That'd be like the variable annuity or the fixed index annuity with a lifetime income benefit where you don't annuitize the contract, or it could simply be a deferred income annuity where you do annuitize and lock in the income so that you know in advance what that protected lifetime income amount's going to be. And so there's pros and cons from doing that. And I guess really we need to try to list what those are to provide an effective answer to the, the question here. Now, this was in particular for those interested in guaranteed income for essential expenses. And that is a trait of being income protection. So if your retirement income style is more income protection or potentially risk wrap with uh, the broader collection of deferred annuities, uh, you may look at this. If your total returns or time segmentation uh, the con is that you're probably not really interested in this in the first place. 
but then more specifically pros and cons pros you get risk pooling risk pooling is a powerful source of spending that an investment portfolio can't provide it's only available through actuarial science it's through the annuitization with a deferred income annuity or the living benefit on a deferred annuity uh, that can support a higher level of income that can be can work as a bond replacement in the portfolio to support over the long term a higher level of spending and, and support. And that would be the main pro. I mean, that's why you're thinking about doing this. So maybe mm-hmm. cons. And there was another question on the list from the live session as well, asking about cons of of SPIAs, single premium immediate annuities, which they then list them. So maybe for cons, we can just work through which of these are actually cons and and so forth. Uh, But potential cons, credit risk or private equity industry involvement. Uh, This is just the issue of if you're relying on the insurance company to provide you a protected lifetime income stream that could potentially extend over 30 or 40 years, you kind of want to make sure that that company is going to be around for the duration of the contract to to be able to actually support those payments. And so a potential drawback. Wait, wouldn't wouldn't you want to fully make sure? Just kind of? Yeah, fully make sure. Well, you can't fully make sure. It's being a little too colloquial there. Yeah, it would be nice to know that the company will be around. <laughs> of course, there's no guarantees that that would be the case. So this is a potential con. Now, many of the large mutual insurance companies that have been around since the 1800s uh, have survived a number of different environments and have, there's a lot of regulations built into the, what the general account of these insurance companies can invest in and so forth. So it's not necessarily a high risk, but it is nonetheless, nothing's 100% safe. And that would be one potential drawback of using an annuity. And, and the, the private equity yeah. industry involvement there were some other questions that came up about this with the Bermuda Triangle. And we had Kerry Pector on the show, one of our past episodes where he talked about that as well. That's a potential All right, concern. Now, and a Bermuda Triangle doesn't mean that you choose to get on a plane and because you have an annuity, why you go over the, <laughs> the Bermuda Triangle, the magnetic force gets lost and you sink. It it's more has to do with uh, some loopholes that private equity companies are doing with regards to investing uh, the proceeds from annuities, et cetera, et cetera. But that's for another time. But, you know, I mean, on a relative basis, relative to the risk of the stock market, it's it's apples and oranges. Now, that being the case, a, a question that this spurred for me, Wade, because look, I'm I'm 51, just turned 51, Wade, December 26. Uh, so whoever wants to send us, thank you, buddy. Boxing thank me. you. I think, <laughs> I think you did it on Teams, though, didn't you? I did. Didn't you I say did happy on birthday teams. on Teams? There you go. There you go. Thank you. Thank you for that it's special so touch. Person. You know, I mean, people don't know this about you, but Wade is such a great guy. I mean, he gave me a thumbs up on Teams, <laughs> made my day. Uh, but uh, what's the? What, what are your thoughts on this? Because I'm I'm going through this, and I you know deferred annuity kind of sings to me, but uh, so does a QLAC. Uh, if somebody's thinking about a deferred annuity and also QLAC, do you think that one cancels out the other and so just get one or could they get both? And then the other follow-up question I have for you from this would be, I know the answer, but I, I you know, I like it when you go through the ins and outs of it. What happens if I die before the income starts coming in? Am I law? Am I at a loss from that money that I that I used to purchase mm-hmm. the annuity? 
want to take it from there? Yeah. So with the qualified longevity annuity contract, that's you can purchase it inside of an IRA and then extend payments past the date that required minimum distributions begin and get a little extra tax deferral for that reason. But whether like, well, how do you manage the credit risk of the contracts? One way would be to diversify between different companies. And so in that regard, you can purchase a QLAC with one company. And there's a limit for QLACs of $200,000 this year is, is a premium to go into those contracts. Uh, you can then also use annuities with other companies as well. And then you're at least not fully exposed to if one company goes under, you lose everything. You would may just be at risk with relation to what you put into that particular company. Now, there are state credit guarantees that uh, for annuitized contracts that can provide some protections up to certain limits of premium levels within each state. But yeah, that would be a, a way to just diversify between different companies to help offset the potential risk of, of credit risk. Uh, you did mention the risk of early passing, and, and that was also on the list of potential drawbacks from annuities. Now, that that's the whole concept. It's risk pooling. Those who don't live as long will not get as much out of the annuity. Those who live longer will get more out of the annuity because they receive more payments from it. And so you are accepting that sort of risk by entering into the contract. But in doing so, you can support a higher level of spending throughout your retirement because you're going to be paid closer to as though you live to your life expectancy, which could be in your early to mid to late 80s, rather than if you're worried, what if I live my money and I have to behave as though I might live into my 90s or even 100, that would mean spending much less. And so though you accept the risk that you will not get as much out of the contract if you do not live very long, those years that you were alive, you get to spend at a potentially higher level because you know that money is going to be there for you if you do live longer than average. And so I don't, I mean, it's a risk, that it, but it's offset by the benefit. And when you think about the liability you're trying to fund for retirement, I need to fund my expenses over an unknown time horizon. Well, if I don't live very long, it's not going to take as much assets to fund that expense. And so use of an annuity in that context in the short run could reduce legacy value for assets. But once you start getting past life expectancies, as more and more of that spending is covered through the risk pooling of the insurance, it might actually increase the legacy. And so it's more flattening the legacy over time. And that that's how, how you might assess that particular aspect of it. Okay. Uh, yeah, you could also add a cash refund provision as well, so that if you do not live long, uh, any premium that you did not receive as benefits, you could... Uh, could go to your beneficiaries. Now, if you do that, it's going to have a lower payout rate, which just, you did not offer as much risk pooling to the risk pool. So you do not get as much out either, but that could be a way to offset that risk of early passing for those who are worried about that. And in reality, there are very few life only annuities that are sold. Most have some sort of refund provision of some sort included in the contracts because people are worried about yeah. not living very long after paying a big premium for an annuity. Okay. And on that, just because I, I had a buddy of mine, I you know okay. when we did the LinkedIn Live, I sent out a link to a bunch of friends who were always asking questions. So I said, now's your chance. And one of them couldn't get in. But since we were talking about this annuity, just to get this one out of the way, his, his question was, effectively, are, are there you know, are there any hitting fees 
or anything like that, not just with a deferred annuity, but just with a standard annuity. And I think this goes back to a little bit of the the marketing uh, uh, influence, if you will, that effectively equates annuities are bad, investments are good. I personally think when you know you view annuities not as invest annuities can't be viewed as investments; they're effectively an insurance product. They're just the reverse of of a of a life insurance policy, if you will. You know things like that, but it's an insurance product, and so it's priced as an insurance product. When you compare it to like the expense ratio of a mutual fund, it looks egregious, but it's a different thing. You're paying for something different. Now, I'll hand it off to Wade to to take that home. So, yeah, the potential downside we're talking about here is annuities may have high fees. And that, yeah, that yeah does, like hidden fees or gotchas. That requires a little bit of unpacking because a lot of times when critics of annuities start talking, they're creating hybrid annuities that don't exist. So if we're talking about a simple income annuity, then now a drawback of a simple income annuity is it can be that irreversible decision. You annuitize the contract, you don't have access to the funds anymore. But those do tend to be pretty low fee, uh, and it's not there's not an f- external fee. It's a spread product in which, just like if I put money into a checking account, the idea is the bank can loan that money out at a higher rate of interest than they're paying me for for depositing my funds at the bank, and that spread is how the uh, bank can make money. And they may have various fees for different things, but you could have a no fee bank that still makes money just through the spread. And that's also how income annuities or fixed annuities work, which is you pay that premium, the insurance company will be paying interest as part of its payout to you. But technically speaking, they're earning more than they're paying to you. They're keeping some of that spread for themselves. And so there's an internal fee in that regard, but there's not an external fee. Now, variable annuities do tend to have fees and you have to just look at what those fees are covering. Part of it is for insurance protections. If you have a lifetime income, that's a valuable attribute that you need to pay for. Now, there are currently fee-only annuities that don't, they're going to have lower fees because they don't have to bake in a commission to be paid to the advisor. But a traditional commission-based annuity may have a higher fee drag on it because the insurance company has to pay the advisor. Now, a financial advisor who charges a percentage of assets under management, uh, has to, <laughs> they kind of, it gets a little squiggly for them in terms of saying you should never look at a annuity because it has high fees when the reality is those fees are just in large part to pay an advisor, which the advisor is probably also charging fees as well. So it's not necessarily a, a critique of annuities specifically, but it's the variable annuities that do tend to have the higher fees. Okay. Uh, but again, they're for things that you're paying for. They're not like Okay, this annuity all in, the fees are, I'm going to get up 3%, whereas a mutual fund is 80, 80 bips, 0.8%. What gives? What gives is that you're, you're paying for the protection, such as the living benefits, the annuitization option, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there it is. Uh, next question. Have you thought through the various issues and risk when one partner retires much earlier, six, eight to 10 years, than the other? especially if it is the primary earner who retires early. Mm-hmm. Sounds like someone wants their spouse back to back at work. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, this question doesn't clarify if the reason for this is because that primary earner is older. Is this person eight years older and retiring eight years earlier, or are they the same age and one person's retiring eight years earlier? 
But I, I think the risks here aren't necessarily as much on the financial side as just on the potential for relationship dynamics. And I think you're hinting at that a little bit. Like if the primary earner <laughs> has retired and the secondary earner is still working and that primary earner is at home all day, they may have certain expectations that are not being fulfilled or whatever the case may be that I, I just, I would be thinking more about potential dynamics in the relationship for that reason. Oh, I was, I was thinking of it. I mean, I was just joking about that. But it, like, no, it's hey, a, real, no... a real issue though. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I don't want this person around for eight hours <laughs> a day while, you know, uh, et cetera. I, I was thinking of it more like, okay, they're going, they've effectively extended their retirement. If they retired 10 years earlier than expected, they've extended their retirement by 10 years. And so there are extra risks. I was just viewing that as, you know, to the degree that you're relying less on human capital and more on your investment capital to draw a retirement paycheck, that obviously increases the risk that you have in retirement, Mm -hmm. specifically longevity, uh, uh, liquidity issues for like spending shocks, and and potentially what, what, what you know longevity uh, oh, healthcare issues that that you could have that you you may not be able to draw on from from a work standpoint. Right. So yeah, there there are increased risk. But I'm assuming the retirement wasn't involuntary; it was yeah, voluntary. And, and that's if if this person is an early retiree, yeah, then there's a lot more financial considerations. If they're retiring at a traditional age, but they're just older than the other spouse then they still have the same sort of <laughs> planned time horizon ahead of them. Now, just one point, the primary earner, if the primary earner is significantly older, that creates a much stronger case for delaying Social Security to 70 because the survivor benefit from yes. that record could potentially, it lasts until that younger spouse passes away, which the the older spouse may have been long deceased by that point. But if that person was going to be 110 years old when the younger spouse passed away, that benefit is around for a very long time and would support delay of social security quite strongly. Okay. Excellent. Well said, good man. (laughs) (laughs) If you're looking for more personal advice, please note that our show is sponsored by McLean Asset Management. Learn more at mcleanam.com. That's M-C-L-E-A-N-A-M.com. McLean Asset Management is a wealth management firm where we help you design and implement the right retirement plan for you. Roth conversions are effective only if one can predict accurately the marginal tax rates are going to be higher in the future. Why is this disclaimer never mentioned during discussions about Roth conversions? Uh, There's there's two things for me to say, Wade. It's, It's not just that tax rates are going to go higher. It could be that your own tax rate, it just happens to be in a higher bracket than what you are now in the future, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, To me, I I don't, why is this disclaimer never mentioned during discussions about Roth conversions? To me, it's the linchpin of of Roth conversions. But uh, Wade, you want to Yeah, Yeah, that's where it's good to get these questions to make sure everyone's on the same wavelength because this is, part and parcel of the whole the underlying assumption of why we're even looking at Roth conversions is to try to find opportunities to pay taxes at lower rates, which by definition then means you're only doing it if the rate today is lower than it would be at a future point. So it's like, this is the entire reason um, 
it's I when I don't know how you lose this disclaimers. It's not that people are just talking about Roth conversions for the fun of it. It's they're doing it to pay lower taxes, and, and so that's I don't know how to like. Why do we need that disclaimer? I mean, that's what we're trying to do in the first place, and it is important to also yeah, remind to- we're talking about effective marginal tax rates. So that's where the Social Security tax torpedo the surcharges on Medicare, the uh, loss of subsidies for the Affordable Care Act, if you're getting health insurance that way, the stacking of preferential income on ordinary income can all lead people to face higher tax rates than the federal income tax brackets would imply. And that's what we're trying. We're looking for opportunities to pay taxes at lower effective marginal tax rates. Yeah, the the whole reason, that's the whole reason for the Roth conversion. To me, I'm going to exaggerate to make the point here. But that's like saying, to live, you need to breathe air. So why don't we tell you that every day? For- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's so like- what this question, but why I is this person it. asking yeah, the yeah. question? <laughs> yes, it's no, very important. I mean, I, you don't just do Roth conversions because it's an exciting thing to do. <laughs> You're doing it to I think the look pers- for opportunities to pay lower taxes. I would think the person got... You know, you, you know, you got to also think about where we're coming from. And we, we live and breathe this stuff to take the air example. Right. And maybe, you know, we, we're too in it and we need to take a step back at just the basic underlying assumptions. And I think perhaps maybe this person got some bad advice and they just said, hey, transfer, you know, do a Roth conversion because you can now have it tax free forever and ever. But they didn't realize that there's taxes to be paid then. And it doesn't make sense to pay them now versus later at X, X, Y, Z tax rates. It could have been lazy thinking, you know, behind an advisor's decision to do that. And that person's now once bidden, twice shy about this kind of stuff. And it's the same argument about even prior to Roth conversions. Just should I contribute to a traditional IRA or traditional 401k or a Roth IRA or 401k? Well, that decision also depends on when can I pay taxes at a lower rate today versus the future? In which case, I should contribute to the Roth today, or am I paying taxes at a higher rate, to, higher rate today than I will be in the future? In that case, get the tax deduction today by contributing to a traditional account. There you have it. Uh, okay, so I'm going to read this one because you're going to have to digest it while I'm reading it because it's it's a it's a, a you know a paragraph here. Again, only retirement researchers <laughs> do this. Uh, hello. <laughs> I am a sixty-five. I am a sixty-five. <laughs> Wait, I gotta get. In, I gotta get in character. I gotta get in character again. Hello, I am a sixty-five-year-old recently retired physician. My wife is a sixty-one-year-old physician who is still working. You know, at the end of this, I want to see if saying that you're a physician is relevant to the story, but that's fine. <laughs> My wife is a sixty-one-year-old physician who is still working, likely for one or more years. Her and my estimated monthly Social Security payments taken at full retirement age will be approximately equal. Both of us are in good health. We are financially set and do not need to take Social Security early to support retirement. We were thinking that both of us should begin Social Security payments at age 70. However, when I tried the online open Social Security tool, it recommended that I begin Social Security at age 70 but that my wife begins Social Security at age 62. I am trying to understand whether this, whether there is an actuarial reason or otherwise she should do this. In particular, given that her Social Security payments would be similar to mine and not less. Thank you. 
Okay, and, and yeah, so probably the reason it's saying the wife to be, or, or there is the age difference too. Yeah, okay, so sometimes when you get to good strategies, there's not a whole lot of difference in the ultimate lifetime results versus when you're comparing a good strategy to a bad strategy. The, the bad strategy here would be to both claim in 62. If you both live long enough, the best strategy would be to both claim at 70. But I think the reason the open social security tool is suggesting uh, one claim at 70, the other at 62, is the uh, their survivor benefit is still relevant. Now, they both have about equal benefits, so there's no spousal benefit at play here, but there's still the survivor benefit that when the first of them passes away, the um, the higher benefit becomes the survivor benefit. So by having the younger spouse claim at, at 62, they're going to have that lower benefit at that point for as long as both of them are alive. But as soon as the first in the couple passes away, the uh, the individual who's delaying till 70, the, the older spouse, that becomes a survivor benefit. And so then the break-even age on on this particular having the low earner, or not, it's not a low earner in this case, but about equal earner claiming earlier, it doesn't make that much difference. Now, I, I do think the open social security tool uses longevity estimates that are more in line. If I remember correctly, they use like the social security life tables for the average American, which doesn't have as long of longevity. And therefore it might just come out slightly ahead to have, in this case, the wife claim at 62 instead of 70. Whereas if you change the longevity assumption and you put that you both live to 90 or something like that, that might be enough to switch it over to both claiming at I, 70. But but that's basically the I, issue. I, I think that's what's happening, Wade, 100%, because let's say I'm, I'm going to assume that my, my sort of uh, simplifying assumption is, is that the younger one is female, the older one is a male. And so let's say there's a seven-year spread between their life expectancy. And, you know, but she's collecting at 62 as opposed to 70 and making the money. It just makes that break-even calculation harder to hit. And so, yeah, if, if, if they're both dying at the same time, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, with the fact that he's older and male, his <laughs> she will probably outlive him. So his benefit yeah. will become her survivor benefit. And I'm guessing probably his benefit, even though they're approximately equal, his might be slightly higher. So she's just going to have that lower age 62 benefit until she gets a survivor benefit. And at the end of the day, it's not going to well, make that much difference whether she claims at 62 or 70. But he should definitely claim at 70. Was what? Was one uh, a pediatrician and the other one? Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, no. <laughs> All right. All right. What's the next one here? Uh, but, and just if you go back to the tool and you flip off the uh, Social Security life tables to enter your own longevity data, I'm guessing that if you just put in, you both live to 90, or if, if that doesn't do it yet, soon 91, 92, somewhere right around there, it will make that flip to tell you to both claim at 70. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be that much difference between these two strategies, whether the, the husband claims at 70, whether the wife claims at 62 or 70 is not going to make that much difference to the lifetime benefits they receive. And that goes back to your first point. As long as you don't make the quote unquote bad decision, mm -hmm. don't, don't worry too much about the least good decision, <laughs> right? Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. 
Can you address Spear annuity no, drawbacks? That, that one we kind of packed. That's the, uh, the Spear version. Yeah, maybe question. we did. Yeah, yeah, insurance, credit. Yeah, you when you talked about the, the triangle and all that. Okay, next one. What do you think about investing in small cap value index funds and large cap value index funds as a portion of your stock investments related to the FAMA French three-factor model? Uh, I'll, I'll kick this one off, wait, and you can go about doing this. It depends on, we kind of answered, not answered this, but we gained momentum in the previous Q&A when we were asked about U.S. international, right? I personally am fine with factor investing. I, I, I do think there's a story there that's systematic and not necessarily one of these things that disappears once it's seen. You know, whether you buy it as a risk premium or whether you think it's a, a behavioral sort of gap within there, it's, it's persistent and identifying it doesn't disappear. Now, over the last 10 years, you know, you've had egg on your face if, if this is something that, that you promoted, right? But you want to look at a couple things, whether it should be inclusion, in, whether there is, in, whether you should include this within your portfolio. I mean, I don't think something fundamentally has changed with regards to economics and the risk reward concept. I think there's something to be said for that. And I, I do believe value stocks have that sort of risky component. Now, Risk is not necessarily, but when I when I define risk, I, you know, it's cost of capital argument, right? Uh, value stocks are fundamentally cheaper, and they're cheaper for a reason because there's some inherent risk involved, right? And so, should you be compensated for that relative to other stocks that are deemed as more safer investments? I personally think that's a good bet to take over the long term. That being the case, is now the right time to get into value or not, and, and things like that. I'm going to sidestep that because I could say yes, and five years could go by. It doesn't show itself, and doesn't mean that I was wrong or I was wrong. I, I still think it's, it's it's going to be there. What what I would say is, do you want to ask, has the fundamentals changed in the terms of has value gotten cheaper relative to growth? And if it's gotten cheaper, is it because of some fundamental issue that is going on from an accounting standpoint with these stocks? And what I mean by that is. The spread between value stocks and growth stocks continues to widen from an accounting standpoint. That means value stocks are more value-y than growth stocks than they've ever been before. That, that spread is there. And why is that? You could ask because the earnings just aren't there and the price goes down to such an extent that it makes them more value-y. Or the other way is the earnings get better but to some extent, it's not reflected in the price. Hence, they're 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 more value driven, and that's what you see a lot. Of. That's that's what you're seeing a lot. You know, the spread is high, but you see it because of that. That va value stocks are still fundamentally sound, sounder, if you will, than they were in the previous years. They're they're not like hitting rock bottom. That's why they're they're you know they're excellent buys. It's just. Their price hasn't hasn't yet been reflected in their earnings capacity, and relative to growth stocks, they seem, you know, that there's a higher dispersion between them on 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 the on the performance side of things, and so that being the case, I you know I'm more sanguine about about value stocks than before. But again, this is a risk store. You need an investment lifetime to be able to accomplish this. So. I personally, personally, so you have to, you know, assess your own situation. 
I see nothing wrong with exposing your portfolio to to these factors. You know, I, I think more so than before, frankly. But that being the case, there's nothing wrong with a market portfolio because the biggest investment decision you'll make will not be, you know, what's my value to market split or what's my size split between large and small. The biggest decision you'll make for an investment portfolio will be stock to bonds. That's going to really be the the main sort of thing that the variable that will guide your investment returns. After that, you know, you're looking at more, not icing on the cake, I think that's a little too cute, but you're looking at more secondary things that could help juice those returns. And yeah, I, I think value makes a lot of sense. I think size makes a lot of sense. And especially after the last 10 years of underperformance relative to growth, because they haven't their fundamentals haven't been degraded more. They're not like now they're almost bankrupt. It's more, you know, their earnings have continued to, to maintain. It's just, it makes it look poor relative to the growth stocks outperformance right now. Wade. Yeah. And that's more of a Bob or Alex question, but just in my own case, I do tend to be more of just hold the total market portfolio, but I also bought into the idea that with the Roth account, that's where you think more about the um, higher potential returns, but less tax efficient asset classes and uh, money in the Roth, I may not be touching for 40 or more years. So I, I did buy into the idea that having an allocation to the, the small cap value and emerging markets, which have been underperforming in recent years, but since I'm kind of in for the long haul, I'm not planning to touch that money for a very long time. So I, I do have that weight overweighting in that regard by having those funds in my Roth account. But I don't think it's necessary and it's just more what you're comfortable with. And, and otherwise for the most part, I just use total market funds. Yeah. Again, there's like, I I said at the beginning, you don't, there's no reason, you know, any deviation from how, if you're talking about now U S total stock market, global could be different because you know, you spend in the U S but if you're looking at a total U S stock market fund, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't say that's bad on merits. You know, any deviation from that is a bet. And so here, this is a bet that value will outperform because they're inherently riskier than more stable companies. And there should be an expected premium for that. You know, but that's an investment horizon. An investment horizon is, unfortunately, a 30-year-plus horizon. It's not something that, hey, it didn't work out for 10 years, so this premium is BS. No, it doesn't work like that. Uh, You know? There it is. Next question. In what situation could a LIRP, life insurance retirement plan, be a good investment for retirement? And that's, yeah, LERP is the preferred pronunciation of that. Uh, so LERP, there you go. LERP and Irma are getting together and they're getting married. <laughs> but uh, if you start reading about these LERP plans, they usually spend a lot of the setup talking about the national debt and how tax rates need to be much higher in the future to pay for that debt. And, and that's a big part of the story. You have to be facing high tax rates before uh, using life insurance just to create the tax-free income sources becomes a truly just worthwhile in and of itself and that's that's kind of the story, the belief that taxes will be much higher in the future. So you're better off paying for insurance fees and things because net of that, the fact that you can develop a life insurance policy that will support tax-free distributions 
will will the tax benefits outweigh the the costs. Now, if you're not in a very high tax bracket or whatever the case may be later in life, or if you do good tax planning so that you don't have that big IRA to generate those big RMDs for you later in retirement and so forth, then it may not be necessary and certainly wouldn't advocate for the use of these LERP policies specifically, but I also can't entirely dismiss them. Life insurance provides tax benefits. And if that's something that could be advantageous to you, which uh, to, to be in a, you'd have to be somewhat wealthy for this to be an issue in the first place. But to the extent that this could be a benefit to you, then it's something definitely people can look at. And on orders of magnitude, what do you mean by wealthy? Because the person who's listening in who has $2 million that, yeah, that... doesn't think he's wealthy. The person who has $5 million doesn't think he's wealthy. The person who has $10 million doesn't think he's wealthy. <laughs> what, what levels are you talking about here? Yes. So what would be the wealth levels? It's really, you've got to be in the higher tax brackets in retirement when you no longer have work income. And that requires having a lot of taxable income, whether four hundred, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars of taxable income in, in retirement. <laughs> so we're talking about, and I, I didn't really do background research to say what is wealthy in this context, but well, I'm as an approximate <laughs> guess, I'd probably say somewhere around ten million dollars would be where, or maybe a little less than that, yeah. eight to ten million dollars, where you might start looking at the potential for benefits from lurping. There's some sort of expression used, it's like lurp before you leap or leap before you lurp or before you start lurping your retirement, uh, you probably want wealth levels in that range. It sounds too much like a slurpee, <laughs> so I can't, I can't take it seriously. Uh, all right. Uh, and then we can finish it off with this one. Uh, I can get 6.3% on a seven-year MIGA or 6% on a 10-year MIGA? Should I replace half of my bond portfolio with this guaranteed asset? Well, before, That's that. before, yeah, before answering that specific question, this. I thought that another direction that came up recently with our Retirement Researcher Academy, someone was angry about this point that why can I get a higher interest rate on a shorter investment than on a longer-term investment? Uh, in the answer, well, in the, usually the longer the maturity, the higher the interest rate. But we do have a bit of an inverted yield curve right now, which is in, suggests that the markets expect short-term interest rates to decline in the future. So that if you bought that seven percent or seven-year MIGA at six point three percent when it came to renew in year seven for the next three years, you'd be getting much less than than six percent at that rate. So that you're somehow not better off just going the seven-year route. Getting that out of the way, um, this question is getting into, we have to be careful about, we can't recommend specific strategies to listeners. You have to go through a financial plan. So should I replace half of my bond portfolio with this guaranteed asset? We really can't say. Uh, it's a consideration. You have to think about what are the drawbacks of the MIGA? I mean, the benefit here, I guess the suggestion is this is yielding higher than they can get with other bond alternatives. It's yielding higher. There will be surrender charges if you need to get your money back out of the contract sooner. There is that whole Bermuda Triangle issue that's impacting MIGAs where, now this is a shorter term horizon, but you may have some concerns about the viability of the insurance company offering, if, especially if they're offering yields notably higher than what other bonds are providing. Um, and 
another benefit of the MIGA is you get the tax deferral compared to bonds in a taxable account. But that would be how you'd really want to be thinking about this. Is it worth locking up that money for this time horizon, facing potential surrender charges and credit risk to get that higher yield compared to what I could get with other bond assets? And we're not able to answer that question for you, but but those would be the issues to think about. I would I would add to this here, and I so one of these things depending on your RISA style, right? I I I I'm always promoting, hey, look at the household, look at the household portfolio. Don't worry about bucketing your portfolio because at the end of the day, it's all one asset on your balance sheet. It's not like you know broken up. But I, I do feel strongly that if, if you're in a total return strategy, then I, I kind of get away from looking at individual bonds or, you know, and by the same token, individual like my guys or stuff like that. And, and you're taking a distribution from the entirety of the portfolio and then bonds. I wouldn't look at them from the standpoint of how can I eke out greater yields? Hey, this one has a 5% yield and this one has a 5.5% yield. So let's target that one, even though you're you're doing a total return approach. You know, I, I think that leads to ultimately bad behaviors because you start getting falling into this yield creep and you start losing focus on the overall portfolio and bonds are the ballast to keep the equity volatility in check. And that that's my number one sort of priority. So to the degree that you can do that, then fine, but I wouldn't do it because, oh, it, it has a half half percent greater yield and so forth because ultimately look yields come from somewhere someone's taking the risk and so you, you have to respect that and within a total return portfolio bonds are just you know def, def, they're supposed to deflect the volatility you know if you want returns do it from the equity side you know that, that kind of thing and and I, and I don't I don't mess around like that not to the degree that you're asking this from a time segmentation perspective and the like and this is for income direct income purposes then i i think wade wade answers is as good as any wait okay. the i make sense yeah. you nailed it all right all right oh thank you thank you <laughs> i hope what was that the end of the Vito song uh and get back uh i hope you enjoyed the audition or something like that <laughs> never mind <laughs> Uh, when they did Abbey Road at the end of Get Back, uh, John Lennon does, you know, he, you know, he's a bit of a smart, smart aleck and he was like, I hope you appreciate the audition, you know, after, after their song. Okay. Uh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I think that's good for these next sets of questions. We're in our newly established 45 minute mark. Uh, anything to add with no, I mean, just we're going to have more of these episodes. And actually, in our next episode, we'll get to what we were planning for the original live episode last yeah. week. Uh, and we, we still have a lot of questions to work through. So it's fun to, to go through everyone's questions. And we'll, we'll continue to do so with the next few episodes. Thanks, everyone, for listening. All right. All right, everyone. Have a good day. Enjoy your time. Bye now. Wade and Alex are both principals of McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor.
All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results. 